I got you, Jim. Okay, here we go. Isn't this cool? <laughs> Guns, school shootings, market massacres, they're shocking and repulsive. But hardly anything new is ever said on this subject, and then it fades away, unresolved. Well, I promise you're going to hear something new here today, because this is Grace Arkey with Jim Babka. I'm your host, Bill Peratzman. Jim, this is our inaugural podcast. Can you explain why are we calling this program Grace Arkey? Well, Grace Arkey is a combination of grace, which is the favor that we grant others, and Arkey, which means rulers or government. So you've heard of a monarchy. That's one person govern, governing. This is Grace Arkey. It's learning to live with one another and, and really seek one another out where we're struggling, where we're weak, where we're, we might need some help. Uh, this is what the concept of Grace Arkey will be all about. What a novel concept, helping each other out <laughs> in a me-first environment, man. We, we've got a ways to go on this, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is there, uh, is we've there, got... Go ahead. I just, I'm just curious, like, so how is this any new, is it newer or different than anything that we might be doing already? Like, if you're in a church and you're giving back, what, what's the difference? Well, the difference is that we need to be doing this all in all places, everywhere. Uh, we need to learn to start to look out for one another. We've got real social problems that we're struggling with. And we need to figure out how to care for one another. And we need to figure out how to do this. Otherwise, we're going to end up uh, fighting with one another. And of course, we could see this over our, our dinner tables and the struggles that we're having in our families right now. Truly. And so uh, this is about trying to find ways to to bridge those gaps so that we don't have these these problems in these situations. So talk to me because... There's, there's change. There's movement. We can see it. And uh, obviously the media likes to bring it to our attention. Like that Republican congressman from New York who decided to embrace gun control. Like, and then he rolled it back. So what's, what's going on here? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, there are a lot of Americans, and I happen to include myself in this group, who uh, value highly the right to keep and bear arms and are concerned about what you might call a slippery slope. And we're not irrational. We're not crazy. Uh, we witnessed here just in the last uh, couple of years, we watched our government go through a whole bunch of unconstitutional actions for the pandemic. We watched uh, as, as, as there was fighting in the streets, riots and buildings being burned down and the cops standing aside. We even saw them stand aside here recently in Uvalde. People start to realize when they see this animosity, when they see this war, when they see a surge and increase in crime and their civil liberties being taken away, they start to realize that maybe they need their guns. And if you actually want to sell as many guns as possible, make them feel marginalized, make them feel squeezed, make them feel like their oppression is coming, because that will drive up the gun sales as, as much as it possibly can. And we know for a fact that gun sales are up right now. So I think we have to maybe start to figure out why, if you, you know, you're saying that there should be fewer guns and I'm saying you personally, but people that say that you're, yeah, there should yeah. be fewer guns and that that's going to somehow or other make the country better, safer, whatnot. The policies, the way they're being pursued right now, right down to, you know, putting warning labels and banning people from social media, all these little things add up to ways that people cannot express themselves and feel like somebody's coming for them. So do you want to make that worse or do you want to make it better? And I think a Republican congressman who forgets that there's a base of people out there, it's pretty significant, <laughs> Yeah, who care about this is going to find himself in trouble. So 
do you feel like we're being manipulated as citizens or that the lawmakers are being manipulated as lawmakers or is there any kind of a like agenda going on here that's somehow not grace-based yes so anytime if you are going to have a gun control regulation right someone is going to have to enforce it Every action of the government comes down to a concept called enforcement. And in the middle of that word is the word force. It's literally spelled out in there. So that means that somebody will come along with guns and arrest. There's literally nobody that I am aware of that doesn't believe they want guns in this country. They just are arguing about who should have them. Good point. And yeah. I am suggesting that we are safest if most people at most times have them. Because most people at most times, and there are 100 million gun owners in this country, they're not going around. There would be mass carnage of, of a scale we can't even begin to appreciate, right, if everybody was behaving badly with those weapons. The fact of the matter is that more guns tends to mean less crime, and we would prefer uh, people be armed uh, so that when something goes wrong, they're there to do something about it. Yeah, individually, like as individuals. Yes. Which yeah. When, when right you think about calling the police, it's, there's the phrase, you know, that when seconds count, the police are minutes away. And by the way, when they get there, their primary job is to take a report. It's not they're not really there for your safety. I mean, they may have to intervene and provide for safety, but oftentimes they're going to get there too late. I want to get to, you know, both of us are fathers. I want to get to Steve Kerr's comments because I, I, I listened to that and I sensed his frustration with everything that's going on and just watching this now for years. I mean, all the way back to, we've got Sandy Hook, we've got Columbine, and there's a list that goes back to the 1800s yeah. of, you know, mass shootings in America. And um, all of that's ringing in my ears and I'm feeling this terrible sort of emptiness inside for the kids and teachers and everyone who's lost their lives. And, you know, thoughts and prayers are great. We should still think and pray. But when it comes right down to it, how do we as parents, like, respond to that kind of frustration? Well, first off, I take Steve Kerr's comments, you know, um, I feel his pain, right? Yeah. yeah. The problem is that the solution isn't going to be the solution. I actually am a big believer in thoughts and prayers. I think it does matter that people are heard and understood and valued and appreciated. I think it also matters that we pray. I believe in prayer. So I would pray for somebody. Um, now you could say, well, you know, you're praying to, to some fairy God that this stuff doesn't really exist. This isn't the same as action. We really want you to do something. But I would ask the question, Bill, what, you know, action, what action? Because, yeah, exactly. because if the action itself is a fantasy, if it will not achieve the ends that you seek and you're denigrating prayer, what, I mean, what is this throwing stones at a glass house? Is this the case of, well, my fantasy is that if we had this gun control rule, then these things wouldn't happen. And I'm saying, well, I'm over here praying and you're pointing the finger at me fantasy. And now I'm pointing back at your fantasy. I mean, who's really fantasizing here? Yeah, I know. And I, so I, feel this too. It's the government. I, I really don't think it's fair to say that people who and I think everybody, including gun owners, this is the thing. Gun owners were appalled and shocked. Yes. So, you know, open confession. This is something that was going to come out sooner or later, but. I conceal carry, and I have done so for over 15 years. And I'm licensed. I've passed a course to be able to do this. I've gone and gotten further training uh, to be able to do this. And it's an awesome responsibility to take on. But when I see something like this situation happening, you know, like the Evaldi situation, yes. right? You got uh, uh, one person who goes into a school and starts shooting. 
I can't help wishing that one of us, one of my community, one of my tribe was there, right? I, you know, I carry this gun and it's had a profound impact on me. It's made me a more peaceful person, frankly. And at some point we will have to explore that. I want to talk about that. But for today, what I want to say is I don't ever, ever, ever want to have to pull that gun out. And yet at the same time, I can't help wishing that one of us was there, even if it was me, right? Yes. That somebody was there to make the carnage stop. Yes. I, I am, I'm so with you on this. And we'll talk about the mental health sort of aspect of this in a minute. But one of the things I've heard advocated for a more responsible gun-owning community would be to do something like Israel does, where every kid goes into military service. And maybe it's not military service. Maybe it's some other form of, of giving back. But I think that training is important. And I watched this with my own son, who went. Yeah. he's in the Marine Corps. And, and mm -hmm. when he learned how to use a weapon, he got his concealed carry. And, um, you know, he's not, he's not a gun nut. I don't think the vast majority of people are gun nuts, but of course the edges are the ones that get the attention. So uh, what skillful ways forward? I mean, are we looking for a voluntary military service to teach responsible gun ownership and maybe vet the, the crazies on the way? I mean, wh what's our potential way forward here? Yeah. So, you know, that we're back to that when seconds count, right? Yes. And so let's admit that something's already dramatically gone wrong. And okay, what do we do once that starts to happen? How do we make sure that the body count doesn't keep climbing? And I shout out to my friend, Laura Carno, uh, who uh, runs an organization called uh, For, uh, Faster Colorado or Forward Colorado. I don't remember the exact name of it, but she was just on television here just a week or so ago. Uh, they put together a program in their state. First off, it's legal if the school board says, that teachers and so forth can be armed, then if they vote to approve that, then that's available. Second, those teachers are not drafted or conscripted in any way. Teachers, even the janitor, any member of the administration can volunteer. Third, the program that Laura runs has police officers and other professionals who are training um, these teachers and so forth. So it's a week-long intensive training that they go through at their own expense, by the way so that they can bring their gun to school with them and be prepared for these situations. So in review, they're trained by professionals. The school board has approved it and no one's being drafted into this program. It's only volunteers, but it means that the likelihood that a gun is going to be in that school once the school board has done that is probably decently high. There'll probably be at least one gun in that inside that building when the shooting starts. Um, Resource officers are supposed to provide that service as well. Uh, this Uvalde school district, the thing that's so incredibly tragic about this is that they took advantage of federal funding that was available to them to have a school district police department, six police officers who did not work for the city police department. They were strictly there for the schools and the gentleman who kept people, apparently, allegedly kept people from going into the room was their chief of their uh, small six person police department. And they, this was, you know, it's like you had one job, you had one job, right? But we hear, Bill, of teachers who are not, don't have weapons, shielding students and protecting them, Physically, taking yes. actions that end up getting them killed. Yes. We know that these students, that they're connected to their students. We know that many of them care and even love their students. And we should be doing something to empower them so that they, so that, that we can reduce the amount of carnage that occurs in these situations. So I am for programs that can arm it. That's it's legal in several states. It's legal in Missouri, I know. It's legal in Ohio, but it's really up to the school board 
first to act. And then you need teachers who will step up to the fore. And the demonization that we do of people who carry or people who value this right, I think is plays into a narrative where people are unwilling to step up and, and be a, uh, play a role in this. So this is a condition where, I, I, once again, I would say more guns would mean at least less victimization, if not less crime itself. I like the idea of community-based, uh, I don't I hate to use the word, but I'll use it, community-based policing, where local communities decide to arm up. Um, I would much rather live, for example, in a building that didn't have a sign in front about any <laughs> guns versus a building that had a sign that said, no guns in this building. I mean, you know, I, I live in an urban environment. That's just an invitation for crazies to come in and, and loot, steal, and, and, you know, hurt people when you advertise it that way. And that's really a paradox because I'm a peaceful guy. You know, I, yeah. I would not shoot. If I had a gun, I would just not shoot somebody unless, like you, I was sort of pushed to the limit. And I think that's the scenario we all hope to be able to um, avoid, <laughs> I guess. There is, a, there is a Japanese samurai, and I do not remember the exact quote, but he essentially says, Bill, you're not a pacifist unless you're capable of fighting. You have to be able to, to be able to do the fight in order to say morally, I don't want to fight. So a lot of people will recognize this, this symbol, right? And I'm doing this for those that are just listening. I have my fist and I put my hand over top. And we do this at the beginning of a, our martial arts classes that I, that I participate in. I'm in a Kung Fu system and I teach Tai Chi. And, and in that system, this, the fist represents the warrior and the hand going over top of it uh, represents the priest, as it were. And the idea is I, I can with the fist, I can't fight, but I cover because I choose not to. And that's the true nature of you. If you want to say you're basically a peaceful person, that's fundamentally what your design should be. You're capable of being very violent, but uh, in, in the right circumstances to restore order and peace uh, to, a, to a chaotic situation. Uh, we used to refer to our police officers as peace officers, right? Yeah. It's about restoring that level of peace, getting back to that equilibrium when things are kind of going really sideways. So that's that to me is the real definition of a peaceful person, somebody that has the merit or the strength to be able to actually induce violence if that's what they need to do. Can I put this in a sort of an international context for a moment? And mm -hmm. you're going to be okay with this question, even though we haven't talked about it yet. But there are a lot of people here in America who look at Canada and the UK and Germany and other places where there is a very strict form of gun regulation and say, but over there, everything's so great. Um, how do we respond to our friends and neighbors here in the States who have that point of view? How can we collaborate with them to find a new way forward? Well, I think there's a couple of things. First, I'm going to say that that's just not true. And if, if apples are compared to apples instead of apples are compared to orangutans, um, you will find out that those numbers don't actually bear out. Um, we do have more gun deaths in the United States. The overwhelming majority of those are due to suicide, which I believe we're going to get to in just a moment. Yes. And, uh, but in terms of the number of mass shootings that we have, um, we're, not, we're not that special, especially when it comes to these larger scale mass shootings where you've got significant body count uh, occurring. We're not, we're not that special. They've happened in Canada, just for example. John Lott, if you want to look him up on, on the internet, is the guy that's the kind of go-to guy on this stuff. He's done a great deal of research over the years, but there's others as well. John Lott, L-O-T-T. -T. It'll be in the show notes. If you're listening or watching, uh, we'll get all this stuff for you later. And yes, I do want to go to the whole suicide question. Because... Yeah, but let me just say one more thing. I also want to say that I think the character of this country is fundamentally different from other countries. 
So there's this, you know, you can't, uh, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, so to speak. And I don't think you would want to. Um, in Shanghai, they sealed the door shut. They locked people in their houses. They have no ability to stand up to their government. In Australia, uh, they had taken the guns away, you know, 20 years ago, right? And their policies to deal with COVID were very, very heavy handed, including lockdowns where you couldn't even go for a walk in your neighborhood. We had some, we went through some difficult stuff the last couple of years, but it didn't get as bad as those two places, not even close. And I would dare say that some of what gets us our freedom and I'm not talking about going out like Wolverine style and you're going to form your little militia. That's, I'm not talking about that. That's right. silly. I want to push that aside for a moment. I'm talking about a fundamental state of mind that says I have rights. Rights in order to exist. One of the things I think they need is some ability, some courage to defend them, some willingness to stand up. Someone has to say, no, this is the line. We're not going any further. And typically the first person that does it, everybody looking around goes, "What? You know, why is this person all wound up, right? calls them an a-hole or whatever, and kind of dismisses them. But over time, as more people start to stand up, we find that no law, no regulation stands up to enough people saying no. Right. Yeah, we have a way and there is, here. And there's a mindset that's attached to that that is very similar to carrying a gun. And in some cases, that gun is physically present, which sends a signal to the powers that be, maybe we shouldn't push any further. Maybe this is the limit to where we should go. So I want that fundamental mentality that I think is uniquely American. I don't want to see that lost. I, I, if you don't like it, this is one of those cases where if you don't like that, I really do think you should look for Canada or somewhere else that you could go from the standpoint that there should be somewhere on the planet where that mentality is able to thrive and exist. Yes. And, and again, I love that it's localizing. <clears throat> uh, we're seeing this with the potential unwinding of Roe v. Wade. They're giving rights back or they're giving responsibility back to the states, to the communities, to the school districts to be able to, to, to do things that fit for their community. Yeah. And, and if there is going to be any kind of involvement as to how this is going to be handled, and I don't think there should be any, I don't want, I don't support any gun control measures that I'm aware of right now uh, that I've heard. But if there is going to be something like that, that should come from the state level. And it's interestingly that, interesting that the two states that have done the most on that in the last three years are red states. Florida being the main one. They have red flag laws down there, for example. So uh, this is not, this should not under any circumstances be a federal question, though 50 laboratories of democracy should be able to start to sort these things out. We, we see eye to eye on that. Uh, let's go to the, to the suicide question. So I want to set this up because I have a couple of friends who are veterans of the Vietnam War, uh, which was an interesting time period, and that's a whole podcast by itself. But both of them were <laughs> infantry. Um, one of them actually carried, he was in the field as an artist. So his job was to document by drawing battle scenes. Um, interesting that the army still does that. In any case, they are both very uh, pro-peace now. Veteran, Vietnam Veterans for Peace mm -hmm. is one of the NGOs that's out there. And they're sort of the living embodiment of, you know, the, the hand in the fist. Right. So um, that being said, there's also so many veterans who were taking their own lives for a long, long time now in the war on terror. So I don't know if it's killed more people, if suicide has killed more veterans than actual combat has killed active duty, but the suicide numbers for folks in our demographic are way up. White men over the top were actually reducing life expectancy because the number of suicides that have taken place in the last, whatever, 10 years, something like that. A lot of these are gun-related. And then, of course, we have teens. And um, where this is all going is to not mental health, I hate to put it in mental health words, but the behavioral health that is um, 
the rate of behavioral health falling through the cracks maybe in the United States that we've seen in the last few years is is over the moon. It's it's ridiculous. We shouldn't be allowing that to happen if there was any way to stop that. And there's, of course, many ways to talk about that. But the bottom line on this question is how do we, in the moment, as a nation, identify a potential risk who happens to have access to a gun and then do something skillful to intervene with that risk before the gun gets used for malicious purposes, whether that's to take one's own life or to take the lives of other innocent people. You mentioned at the earlier point in our show here that there are buildings that have signs that say no guns allowed. And I cannot help noticing that these events occur in public places that tend to have those signs, movie theaters, shopping malls, and unfortunately, schools. The sign's there and it says don't bring a gun in and somehow or other, I don't know, the person who's bringing the gun didn't get the memo. Is that what we're supposed to think? Is that somehow or other, did that make us safer in that moment? Clearly in the case of Uvalde, that wasn't true, right? Clearly in the case of Buffalo, that wasn't true. I think the people that do this, regardless of their state of mind, and I think that's going to be an important thing we discuss here in just a second, but regardless of their state of mind, are after body count. And you've heard of the phrase suicide by cop? Yes, yes. Okay, so you go into a, you have a situation where most people who are suffering from depression, who are suffering from uh, a variety of maladies, they're not being heard, they feel they're being oppressed in some way, turn the violence on themselves. And this is the number one far and away category for people who uh, die due to what we call gun violence, Okay. But some decide that they're not going to go alone and they want to take body count with them. They want other people to feel their pain at that moment. They want to create as much misery as possible. And so they choose soft targets. They choose places that have these signs. They choose the places where they expect people to be crowded together and very important, unarmed. Now, you raise what I think is the most important question. And I feel like the, the gun rights community, the people who care about this issue have failed to address this. We, we have this debate. It's very tired. It's very staid. It's every time one of these events happen, it's the same sides, same characters saying the same things, including, uh, uh, you know, all, all due respect, Steve Kerr uh, getting very upset and saying, you know, we've got to do something and he's blaming the Republicans. But I think if the real problem here is that we have a, a group of people, and you're mentioning that there's a there's a loneliness factor going on, there's a there's an isolation that's happening, a marginalization is happening. And in school shootings, we know that in some of these cases that it was bullying that was happening. There was a sense of 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 utter aloneness. And in the case of this Uvalde shooter, we don't know yet what the whole psychological profile is, but we do know that in the weeks leading up to this event, there were warning signs sent out to various people. Various people saw him in, engaging in behaviors and saying things that were appalling and stupid and scary. And that morning, he started his day off by shooting his grandmother in the face. And you, to me, they're, they're, he was throwing out the signs, but we don't really have a system for being able to recognize what those signs are and more importantly, to figure out how to start to help or fill the need. How many people are in depression? How many people have experienced bullying? 
Grace is about trying to figure out how to rescue people from those situations before they act out. And I want to be clear about this. Act out on themselves because that's what they're going to do 99. some percent of the time. We don't want to see any of them starting to destroy their lives in some kind of suicide or slow motion suicide, whether it's, it's getting addicted to drugs, uh, overeating, uh, refusing to kind of, you know, being lethargic and will, unwilling to kind of engage their life and find happiness. We should want every person to have happiness. And when we see that happiness, we should be moved toward uh, unhappiness. I should say we should be moved to want to go towards them and help them. And I think their needs, and I don't have all the answers as to what this needs to be. I want to kick off this discussion. I think there needs to be a dialogue about how we help people who clearly are in pain, who clearly are not happy so that they don't go down this path where they're most likely to hurt themselves. And the very slim chance exists that they may hurt several others. This is really close to my heart, Jim, because um, one of my stepkids was bullied starting from first grade up till, I don't know, middle school. Mm -hmm. And you don't know why you're different when you're that young. No. But in states that have passed laws that prevent you from asking other responsible adults what might be going on, um, that just adds pressure to the whole situation and doesn't intervene with bullying. So I am very, very on board with your concept of how do we extend grace to people at the moment that we notice that there's something wrong. And that could be a kindergartner who's crying on the playground, you know, and the only one there that can be responsible is an adult. You don't have to get into some big conversation and don't say gay doesn't end. But but how do you as a human being, right? That's the thing we're talking about here. How do human beings connect to prevent tragedies from happening? You know, I just you just raised an interesting issue. I hadn't thought about this in exactly the way that you put it before. So I appreciate you mentioning it. But there has been a long pattern of us failing to trust teachers. Uh, we have a, a regime that requires them to give their students lots of tests. And they have less and less control of their classroom as time goes by. We've taken away various disciplinary measures. Maybe some of those were necessary, but I, I just, I, you know, they're on the scene interacting with these kids. And if they're not qualified to act for them, then they shouldn't be there. Right. Um, but the idea that we would, you know, allow them to be able to reach out and touch a child in a way that like, maybe they need a hug right now, or maybe they just need an encouraging word, right. To be able to do that. And to be able to use their best discretion and their best skill, uh, regardless of what you happen to think about their faith or their psychology or whatever, like the, being able to kind of reach across that line. And, and yeah, I mean, I, this seems to me very, very important. And it, it's, it's not an accident that a lot of this starts early for some of these kids, right? They do, they are different and they can't quite figure out how to fit in, right? Whether it's, you know, they've got uh, uh, some kind of disability or they're, uh, they're just playing different right? From, from the rest of the kids there, they don't quite know how to do it. And I, I think, by the way, every one of us, every one of us has gone through the experience growing up, uh, the terrifying experience that you are different, that you are unique, that you are alone, that, that nobody understands you, nobody gets it, nobody cares. And these things, you talk about the capacity to know and understand what's happening to you. These are new experiences, right? And so yes. they seem to loom a lot larger. I don't think these go away. I think they stay with people for the rest of their lives. We're all trying to figure out whether or not we're good enough, whether we measure up. Uh, I believe that's uh, the primary thing that Jesus came to show is that we, we didn't have to measure up, right? God loves us anyway. Yeah, just as we are. 
just as we are. So our um, job is basically to learn to love other people just as they are too. What if that appears as mental illness mm -hmm. or a political point of view that we don't like or a shooter in a classroom? Right. That's yep. hard. That it is very difficult. It's going to take some new skills. And for those people who are listening to me, who know me as Mr. Libertarian, like this is what I do. I would say we're not going to solve any of these problems. And this is after a career of trying to change Congress and get them to perform better or trying to get people elected to office. That is not our solution. The solution is grace. The point is grace. Let's we need more about, grace points. Let's talk about an example of that, that both you and I know and respect, Daryl Davis. Yes. What an amazing guy. So uh, do you want to tell the story or shall I? Yeah. So, well, no, go ahead. I, I, oh, I no, like no, your I, version I, of it. I'll do it simple. Uh, Daryl Davis is a black piano player like me, right? I'm, I'm a black piano player. No, he's a he's a musician. And the, the short form of his story is that he decided to uh, to take on the Ku Klux Klan as an individual saying, wait a minute, this isn't this isn't good for us. This won't work in the long term. Hate doesn't work. So uh, I'm not going to do a spoiler alert or anything like that, but if you get a chance to see his TED Talk or listen to a podcast where Daryl's been interviewed, uh, do that because it is an amazing story and it is as miraculous and incredible as it, a story can possibly be in America. Right. And let me be clear, this story, the, the relationship between that story and this situation or the, the conversation we're having right now is that he got 26, I think is the number. I don't, don't quote me on the exact number. You can look it up. Members of the Klan, including Grand Wizards, to hang up their, their robes. In fact, they give him, he's got a closet full of their robes because he sat down and had conversations with them. And I want to be clear about the nature of these conversations. He never once said, hey, what you believe is cool or anything goes, or you can believe whatever you want. He's told them that their ideas are wrongheaded and even stupid. But he talked to them as human beings, got to know them, asked them why they felt the way they did, what motivated them to join. And interestingly enough, you know, he's got uh, one uh, not quite yet former Klansman who uh, invites, he and his girlfriend invite him to their wedding, which has Klansmen at it. And he went. And at the wedding, uh, her father was unable to attend or show up. And she asked Daryl, Again, Klan people are there to walk her down the aisle. So get the picture now. This is a white wedding. Yes. And with the, with the, Klansmen. The father of the bride. With Klansmen, right. And the father of the bride walking the bride down the aisle is Daryl Davis. Right. And so this is the grace point I'm, I'd like to conclude on. Daryl Davis is a model for exactly what I'm trying to talk about. Or if you're a playground monitor who is out there with children talking to them, you're the model that I'm talking about. It's about finding people where they're hurting now and finding ways to meet their needs. The, the burden is, can't be sent off any longer. It didn't work. We've tried this experiment. We can't send it to capitals. We can't trust politicians whose real role is not concern and compassion. It's power. We cannot trust them to do this any longer. We can't give this to bureaucrats who end up becoming bean counters. We can't force teachers who aren't, uh, you know, who have so many kids to deal with every day, although each one of them can reach out. We have to start every human being in a community, the people that you have contact with, the people you know, and the people that you can go out and meet by getting active in your community, by meeting others. This is where the solution lies. You can extend grace.
let me make close by making a, a, a point about what I'm trying to say here. You have mercy or forgiveness, which is, you know, Bill, you offended me. I'm going to let you off the hook. And that's good because anytime there's a fight going on or a dispute, someone has to be the person that says this going, it's going to end here. Right? So that's a good thing. We want that. But grace goes a step further. Grace is that favor that you grant, that assistance and support you give to help restore somebody who is making your life uncomfortable or offending you or doing something that you find distasteful. You're trying to understand, hey, dude, where are you coming from? And how is it now that I can be of help to you, right? And tolerance is an aspect of that to start off with, but curiosity and empathy are huge. So I want to encourage people to have that curiosity and empathy Spot, look for people who seem to be suffering and see how you can fit in and you can be of benefit and help. That's the grace arc we're looking for. And if you, by the way, if you're not thinking about this, if this is not part of your discussion, you say you care about gun crime, you're not, you haven't even begun. You haven't even started. So let's put aside the tired debate. Let's put aside the both sides and let's start dealing with the real problem at its root, which is the need for grace, helping other people find happiness. I almost don't want to say anything on top of that, Jim. Uh, So everybody, you've got homework. Your homework is to find some grace and deploy that grace, whatever the situation, whether that's in your family, with friends. If you have an opportunity to do it more publicly, it could be as simple as offering someone a smile who isn't smiling, someone you don't know. But uh, that's how it starts. And building that grace muscle is important here because in the long term, I agree with you, Jim, and many other people do, that grace is the way forward. Grace is the thing that's going to save us. Grace is the thing that's going to help us digest the paradox of the duopoly. You know, it's, it's, the, it's the, the alchemy that will get us from where we are to where we want to go. Thank you, everybody, for being here. Episode one, Grace Arkey is in the can. Jim, we're going to do this again. And uh, many blessings, Real soon. To you, my friend. Real soon. And Likewise. Stay tuned. Uh, this is spontaneous, so you got to subscribe and uh, ring the bell so that you'll get notification when we go live. And until yes. the next time, everyone, many blessings. Aho. <laughs>